0: May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of these scriptures. Amen. You may be seated. So today we continue our journey on a disciple's path. We talked last week about what it means to be a disciple. We talked about how knowing, even declaring who Jesus Christ is, is not the same thing as being a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows And we want to follow our Lord Jesus Christ so closely that the dust of his sandals settles on us. And prayer is one of the ways that we do that. Prayer helps us to follow Jesus ever closer and closer. Someone once said that in the Methodist tradition, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And as we journey on this pathway of discipleship, our beliefs and our actions change. And in that way, God transforms our hearts. In a way, that's actually how Methodism started. In the 1730s, brothers John and Charles Wesley were students at Oxford. And they began meeting with a few of their friends with the sole intention of helping each other live more faithfully, to live holy, faithful lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. They just wanted to be better disciples. They met regularly to read scripture, to pray together, to engage in what they called religious talk. They wanted to reflect theologically on what was happening in their lives and in the world. No one, literally no one, paid any attention to what they were doing until they started living differently. They started showing up all the time to receive communion at Christ Church Cathedral. They started visiting folks who were in prison, whether for a crime or for in debtor's prison. They just visited all sorts of folks. They started serving the poor. They started caring caring for those who were elderly or homebound. And people started to say, huh, what are Johnny and Charlie, because that's probably what they called them, what are Johnny and Charlie and their friends up to anyway? And John and Charles and their friends said, you know, we're just a group of people trying to live as faithful disciples. We just want to live lives that are consistent with our faith in Jesus Christ. And people said, hmm, sounds like you've started some sort of holy club. Some people even called them Bible moths. <laughs> they, they added in, John and Charles and their friends, they added in um, spiritual disciplines like Prayer and scripture reading and fasting. And they made it part of their regular routine. They were so intensely methodical about what they were doing. They were so intensely methodical about their discipleship that people mockingly called them Methodists, right? And that name has been with us ever since. But it's better than Bible Moths, right? Gray Memorial Bible Moth Church doesn't exactly ring well in my ears. So John and Charles and their small group of friends, they made these lifestyle changes that resulted in transformation of their hearts. And then because their hearts were transformed, their lives looked different, you know, they started acted differently. And it, and it was just this circle. In other words, uh, being intentional about developing themselves as disciples led to transformation that drew them closer to God. And drawing closer to God led to more and more transformation in their lives. It deepened their discipleship. They learned that the life of a disciple, in order to really be a disciple, it's something you have to practice. Being a disciple doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't even happen just because we come to church. Being a disciple takes practice. The disciple's path requires us to use spiritual disciplines that lead us to a God-centered life instead of a self-centered life. And when your life is centered on God's love, then you can participate in the transformation of the world. The United Methodist Church, the mission of of, of our organization is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we make that transformation one disciple at a time. And prayer is absolutely central to this. The very first thing that John Wesley ever published was a collection of prayers. In 1733, he published a collection of forms of prayer for every day in the week. He was indeed methodical. (laughs) In fact, Wesley said in 1742 that the character of a Methodist, and friends, really this is the character of a Christian, but you have to think about the context he's writing in, He's trying to to define what it means to be a Methodist. And he says "The, the five characteristics, the five distinguishing marks of a Methodist are that we love God. A Methodist loves God. A Methodist rejoices in God. A Methodist gives thanks. A Methodist loves others. And a Methodist prays constantly. A Methodist prays without ceasing meaning we continually turn our thoughts over to God. You and God are in a divine conversation and everything that you do as part of your life is part of that conversation. We build to that by being intentional about taking time to pray. And we pray because we believe in the power of prayer. Amen? We believe in the power of prayer. Yeah. I have a relative who often posts prayer requests on Facebook. And uh, so if a friend or a neighbor gets a tough diagnosis or is having a hard time, she'll share just a little bit. And it is just a little. She doesn't overshare. She'll share just a little bit about it. And she'll invite, you know, her Facebook community to be in prayer for the person. And she, she always ends those posts the same way. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. And I really like that. It seems like such a simple statement, but it's actually very profound, isn't it? I believe in the power of prayer. You know, in Scripture, the primary purpose of prayer is to enable us to build this relationship with God, to live in this intimate relationship with God so that we can become agents of God's saving purposes in this world. Jesus himself takes time to pray. Prayer isn't really so that we can get what we want from God. It's not a way to deliver our list of demands, right? Prayer is a way to connect with God. It builds our relationship with God so that God can get what God wants, which is the transformation of the world in and through us. And in the Wesleyan way, our prayer life must be shaped by and formed in Scripture, by and in disciplined reflection on the Bible. So let's talk about Scripture for a minute. What is the Bible? You probably have a Bible right there in your pew. What is this? Well, it's a library, right? 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And it records some of the times and places and ways that that God came down from the heavens and interacted with humanity. Some of the ways that God has made God's self known. It's the true story of God's relationship with us, right? So is the Bible true? Yes, the Bible is true. Is it filled with stories? It sure is. If I ask you to tell me your life story, I expect you to tell me something true, right? So being a story doesn't mean that it's not true. In fact, stories can often convey truth far beyond factual recitations, right? Real human beings in real places experienced God's presence in a real and personal way. And they told their story to their community of faith, and it was retold and retold and retold until by the power of the Holy Spirit, it was written down. Written down and passed on to us. So when we read the stories in this library, the library of the Bible, we can experience that same Spirit of God reading life into the written Word so that it becomes a living Word in us. So were the writers of the Bible inspired? Yes. And also we are inspired by the Holy Spirit when we read it. That's how it can make sense to us. But you know, the Bible is more than a science book, it's more than a history book, and so let's not reduce it to either of those things. Sometimes we sometimes we make that mistake. We want to reduce this to uh, as if it were a textbook, and it's not. It's so much more important than, than that. The people who experienced and told and retold the stories that are captured in our scriptures, you know, they existed long before enlightenment, long before the modern scientific method, They were experiencing God before humans had figured out how to make a telescope or a petri dish, right? So that doesn't mean that their experiences of God aren't true or valid or worth passing on. So this is so much more than a science book. There is truth that science and history will never be able to capture or convey. And we find that in Scripture. And it's okay to accept the Bible as the true and inspired work, even though even though it does say things that today scientifically we would go, well, no, it couldn't have worked that way, right? Or maybe, maybe we haven't quite yet made all the history jog and made it all match up. And that's okay. It's okay to accept the Bible because we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. We don't worship the words of Scripture. We worship the one who is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. What are the opening words of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And we know about Jesus, of course, through the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible, which is inspired and true and a library, and so much more than that. As I think you know, I grew up in the Lutheran church. In the Lutheran church, um, and, and in many of the churches that come from the Protestant Reformation, when they talk about the Bible, they talk about sola scriptura. That's a Latin phrase that means only Scripture. Only Scripture, and we do believe that everything we need for salvation can be found in the Old and New Testaments. But we don't really practice sola scriptura. We practice prima scriptura, which means Scripture is primary, but not solo. Can we do a quick history lesson? Are you with me? All right, we're going to do some history. John Wesley was an Anglican priest. He was a priest in the Church of England. That's what Anglican means means English. And you might remember from your history classes long ago that uh, the Church of England was created by Henry VIII in the 1500s. I said it was going to be a history lesson, right? Well, what else was happening in the 1500s? The Protestant Reformation. It was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral and he his list of complaints or grievances or things that he wanted to change, his protests against the Roman Catholic Church in which he served. So at the time of Henry VIII in the 1500s, the Catholic Church was already in a bit of turmoil. And then Henry VIII decided that he did not want to be married to his wife anymore. He did not want to be married to Catherine of Aragon. And so he went to the the pope and said I'm going to divorce my wife and the pope said nope. The pope said nope. <laughs> the pope told Henry VIII he could not divorce his wife Catherine of Aragon. So Henry went to the head of the Catholic Church in England, Thomas Cranmer. And he said, "Tommy, let's go do our own thing. And so Cranmer came up with a theological justification for Henry to divorce Catherine of Aragon. And the following year, the English parliament declared that Henry, that the king, the monarch, would be the supreme head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And to this day, that's true. The monarch, monarch of England is the supreme head of the Church of England. So in our lifetimes, that was Queen Elizabeth II, and now it's King Charles III. He is the supreme head of the Church of England. Since we're on this history detour, I just want to tell you that a couple of decades after Henry VIII divorced Catherine of Aragon, um, he died. And he had a son who came to power for a little while, but then his daughter, Mary, became the queen. And she was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and she had been raised by her mother, so she had remained a devout Catholic. And so she had Thomas Cranmer arrested and tried for heresy and burned alive in public. So that story did not have a very nice ending, did it? My point is really this, though. The Church of England in which John Wesley was formed, trained, grew up in 200 years after Henry VIII, it didn't come out of the Protestant Reformation. Right, It was founded by Henry VIII and Thomas Cranmer. It was founded on really more Catholic roots, you might say. So Sola Scriptura, which comes out of the Protestant Reformation, is not part of John Wesley's formational, foundational understanding. He's taught, and he goes on to teach, that Scripture can be understood through tradition and reason. And then... After a lifetime of experience, John Wesley said, Scripture is primary, but in order to interpret and apply it, we have to use tradition and reason and experience. Sometimes we call this the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but the four parts are not equal. Scripture is primary... Scripture has more weight than tradition, reason, or experience, but it acknowledges the reality that we can't interpret what the Bible says without using tradition, reason, experience. All of these are formational and foundational for us. We don't throw away all of the spirit-inspired interpretations and application that has come before us, right? There's some great theology in our hymns. That's part of our tradition, can be part of our experience. So we bring all of this to the table when we're reading the Bible. But prayer and scripture reading, these are non-negotiables when it comes to discipleship. They're food for the journey on a disciple's path. Without them, we'll get sidetracked. We won't be able to stay on the path. We'll end up starved. We'll run out of gas. You get the metaphor. We won't have what we need to be on the disciple's path if we are not rooted in prayer, and if our prayers are not rooted in scripture. We need these for the journey. Prayer and scripture reading are practices that center our lives in Jesus Christ so that we can be vehicles of God's love for the transformation of the world. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite 20th century writers, uh, was not a Methodist, sadly for him. He was actually a Roman Catholic. Uh, But he captures our methodical roots when he says discipleship cannot be realized without discipline. Discipleship cannot be realized without discipline. And through discipline, he says, a disciple realizes that their purpose is not to master anything, but rather it is to be mastered by the Holy Spirit. When we are mastered by the Holy Spirit, what will happen? Well, the Apostle Paul says, we won't worry so much. In our reading today, he says, Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. Doesn't that sound lovely? The peace of God will guard your hearts. Paul says, pray to God. God is real. God is listening. God wants what's best for you because God loves you. This is amazing. It is amazing that we can talk to God. I want to put this in context with you. Right? I write letters to my senators more often than they would like me to. Right? I call and leave messages that I don't think anybody ever listens to. I couldn't call President Biden even if I knew the phone number to the White House. I would not be able to get through. Right? I... uh, I was in student government in undergrad. I was in student government with John Daly, with our mayor, and I went to law school with his wife. I could probably get him on the phone. Maybe. I can always get God. I can always talk to God. And God is so much more powerful than any of those people, right? And yet God is so much more accessible to us. How do we pray? How do we find the right words to talk to the God who loves us so much? Well, Jesus said, you just don't need to make it complicated. You don't need to heap up empty phrases. He says, you can just say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. This is an incredibly brief but remarkably broad prayer. It's God-centered, not self-centered. In fact, it places us squarely within the family of God. We never pray, my Father who art in heaven. We always say, our Father who art in heaven. In just a few phrases, Jesus shows us how to take our eyes away from our own problems and, and look out on the horizon of God's destiny for humanity. Thy will be done. Plus, Jesus gives us words to acknowledge that we have needs. We need our daily bread, and that can represent a lot of things, right? We need our daily bread. We need forgiveness. We need to be saved from the temptation to do evil. We need help forgiving those who have hurt us or wronged us. So the Lord's Prayer gives us a bit of a model. There's another model. We've put this in your bulletin for you, and it's, it's up here on the slides. It's, it's the Acts model. If you've been in church, as I know many of you have, you probably have seen this many times, but I wanted to offer it to you today. This is a kind of a structure you can use when you're formulating your own prayers. You start with A, adoration. Praise the Lord for being our awesome God, right? Our Father who art in heaven holy and glorious God. In any of these ways, you know, that you can acknowledge who God is. And then C, confess. Admit your sins and ask for God's overflowing forgiveness and mercy. And then thank God for all that God has done and will do. A, C, T, adoration or acknowledgement, confession, thanksgiving. And then S, Share with God what is on your heart, supplication. Share with God what you need or what your friends need. Our request for our daily bread, our, our request to be protected from the temptation to do evil. This comes after we have acknowledged who God is and thanked God for who God is. And then I would add another S, maybe two S's. I would say sit in silence. Sit in silence because sometimes in prayer, we just do all the talking. <laughs> we don't mean to, but we do heap up empty phrases, don't we? We need to remember prayer is a dialogue, it's a conversation, it's not a monologue. I don't know if any of you are comic book fans or if you like to watch superhero movies, but let me tell you that in those stories, what happens before the villain dies? They monologue. They just go on and on, and they're talking, and they're so wrapped up in their own talking that that then makes them vulnerable. Don't monologue with God. Don't be like that. Remember, it's a conversation. So take time to listen as part of your prayer life. And that'll get you farther on the disciples' path than you can imagine. It helps you in your prayers to stay God-centered rather than self-centered. Listening is a powerful and necessary tool that helps us follow Jesus so closely that we get the dust of, the sand, of his sandals on us. We have to listen for the voice of God. It's how we know we're on the right path. It's how we know we're in the right direction. It's how we know when we need correction and we need an adjustment. Through prayer, through scripture reading... We can stay on the disciples' path and follow Jesus ever closer and closer. Amen.